All right, as you're uh, collecting yourselves and coming back together, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Let's refinish that chapter this morning. Acts chapter 15. Um, last week we did that first two-thirds of the chapter where we were looking at the Jerusalem Council and the dispute that the Judaizers had brought uh, in coming and saying that for these believers who were being saved, these Gentile believers, that they also uh, needed to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised, among other things. And that was laying a heavy burden upon uh, these people because the Jews believed, of course, that the path of salvation was through um, their view of God, uh, mainly through the law. But, of course, the church came together and they had to uh, consider that and pray through it and deal with it. And then they, of course, sent a letter out. So we're picking it up in verse 30 as they are being sent out with that letter to the churches. So we are going to read verses 30 through the end of the chapter this morning. And you can read along with me or it'll be up here on the screen. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, also being prophets, excuse me, being prophets also, exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us in advance. And we know you're going to. You always do. And Lord, we just open our hearts and our minds this morning to hear what you have for us from your word. As we consider this both wonderful and at the same time difficult and challenging passage, dealing with brothers who had a dispute and it caused a separation and a deep disagreement, a, a deep divide within the church. And so, Lord, we come to consider these things and to humble ourselves because, Lord, we know that we are prone to these very things, to having contentions and sharp disagreements over things. And so, Lord, show us how to consider these things and how to work through them and, and how to just submit ourselves first to you. And then, as your word says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as we consider this this morning, we're picking it up, as we said, with them taking this letter from the Jerusalem Council in Jerusalem, and they are going off to Antioch in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. So who was the, the, the they? From our previous passage, it was Judas and Silas. These were men from the Jerusalem church along with Barnabas and Paul. And so these men, these four men are sent, two men from the Jerusalem church to sort of back up and validate what was written and said in that letter and Barnabas and Paul who were both members of the, the Jerusalem church but they were more founded and established in the church at Antioch. So they bring the letter to the church at Antioch. And, and notice it, it said when they had gathered the multitude together. This was not just a few people. This was a large church. And this is something, of course, if we go back to last week and read through that passage again, uh, the church in Antioch had these, these Jewish brothers and many of them Judaizers. Judaizers, by the way, is not a good term. It's a negative term. And when the Judaizers were there, they were antagonizing the body of Christ. And they were saying, you aren't real Christians unless you do these things, as we discuss. Follow the law of Moses, get circumcised. And so now they are gathered sort of with anticipation as this letter is brought to them. Remember, they, they sent these men up to Jerusalem to take it to the council, to the council of the elders, to the apostles, and to ask them, how do we handle this? What shall we do? How do we deal with, with what they're saying? And what's true? And is, and is, it, is it real? Or are we not yet, in a sense, completed believers? You see, for the Jew, a Jew went through a rite, a passage throughout their life. When they got to 12, they were bar mitzvahed. And of course, as they became an adult male, they would be, quote, completed. And so they would come to this place where everything that they had learned has sort of been brought to fruition and they've been accepted into the community, not only as men, but as men who love and know the word of God. And they viewed these Gentiles as people who, like themselves along that journey, had not yet been completed. And so these Gentile believers are now together eagerly waiting for this letter. So they delivered the letter. And verse 31, when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So why was it encouraging to them? Just brief review of last week. They settled the matter of the Judaizers' message. Uh, the one that said you must keep the law of Moses and you must be circumcised. They clearly defined what the true gospel was. Paul, in writing to the Galatian church, remember Galatia is a region, and it was a region that Paul and Barnabas visited on their first journey. And we covered it last week, mostly in chapter 14. And if you go back and read chapter 14, they were in the region of Galatia. But when Paul later wrote his epistle to the Galatians, <clears throat> he said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel, this is to that, the, the Galatian churches, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. What was that gospel? The Judaizers' gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, the Judaizers, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, 
Then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So Paul was clear. He was emphatic. There's only one gospel. There's not different versions of the same gospel. There's only one true gospel. In Galatians 1, verse 11, continuing down just a little bit in that same passage, Paul says, But I make, no, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, I didn't make it up. For I ne neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember Paul uh, after his conversion, the Lord Jesus took him aside into the Arabian desert for three years. Paul was discipled by Jesus, as we understand it, for three years in, in solitude. And so Paul's referring to that here. I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. After he, remember, remember Paul got saved, not because somebody preached to him, but because Jesus preached to him. Remember chapter 9, the road to Damascus? He's going to persecute the church. He has papers in hand. And as he's going to Damascus, his first stop along his persecution journey, Jesus meets him on the road. He falls to the ground at noonday when Jesus, who is a light brighter than the noonday sun, uh, encounters him. And Jesus speaks to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And he immediately says, who are you, Lord? So Paul got saved because Jesus preached to him. And Paul, you see, already knew the gospel. He had already heard it many times. He heard it from Stephen. Remember, he was there the day Stephen was stoned, holding the cloaks of those who were throwing the rocks to kill him. No doubt, Paul was probably in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. As far as we understand it, he was a part of the Sanhedrin, so he, he probably was there when one of the trials of Jesus came up. Paul had been exposed to the gospel, so when Jesus encountered him on that day, he didn't have to say a whole lot to him. Basically, Saul, you know who I am. Why are you doing this? You're persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. And remember, Saul went away for three days in silence. He was blind and he waited for Ananias to come. Then Ananias came, that servant of the Lord. And he laid his hands on Paul and he prayed for him and he said, receive your sight. And the, the scales fell from his eyes. And the spirit came into his life in that moment as, as Ananias laid hands on him. So, so all of this is very personal to Paul. And so he says, I received it not from man, nor did somebody teach it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And then finally in Galatians 2.16 on that point, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh is justified. In other words, the law is useless in bringing someone to salvation. It cannot help. It, it, the law does not have the atonement for sin. The atonement for sin comes through the Messiah, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. So why were they encouraged when they read it? 
because the gospel was clarified for them and all of the chaff and all of the, the fog and the dust on the issue was blown away. So they were rejoicing. They were encouraged as this letter from the church in Jerusalem was brought to them and read to them. So in verse 32, it says, Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. So they had heard, as the church in Antioch, many times uh, people coming in and bringing the word to them. Most notably, they were familiar with uh, Paul and Barnabas as they were teachers in the church. But it seemed that this was a growing, burgeoning church and that God was raising up other people. So to have these men come from the Jerusalem church, sort of the mothership, if you will, in a sense. And they came and they they preached the same thing and it says that they were prophets also and they exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words and no doubt the church was rejoicing at hearing from these men who were sanctioned and blessed men from the church in Jerusalem. And in verse 33, after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So they came, they brought that letter, they authenticated it alongside Paul and Barnabas. They stayed there for a while teaching and encouraging the church, just a blessed time. And then there was time for them to go back. And however, in verse 50, excuse me, 34, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So now you sort of got this, this situation. Judas and Silas were there. It's time for them to go home. And Silas says, you know, I kind of like this place. I like what's going on here. This is exciting. I think I want to hang around for a while and see what God's doing. So Silas hangs back. Judas heads back to, to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch. This was their home church. And notice it says that they were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The Spirit of the Lord was moving. Good things were happening in this church. Paul and Barnabas were enjoying great success with their ministries. They had a, a platform to use their gifts and to honor God and to preach and to teach and to build up the body of Christ. And they were just thriving in this environment. It was such a ripe environment. And notice it says, with many others also. I don't think that's saying that they were there in the midst of a lot of people. I think what it's saying there is that they were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. In other words, God was raising up and building up other people who also were pastor teachers and prophets and evangelists who had gifts as God was, uh, you know, as it says in 1 Corinthians, severally distributing the gifts of the Spirit to the church. And so the Spirit of God was working. So the Lord was strengthening, the Lord was blessing, and this was an exciting place to be, and these were exciting days to live if you were in the church in Antioch. Notice in verse 36, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. You see, these are shepherds, these are pastors. Not just prophets, not just apostles. These are pastors. Let me just take a moment to remind you as we read through the New Testament, there are certain offices in the church that the Lord has ordained. One of those is the office of deacon. 
The word deacon means servant. We saw the first appearance of that all the way back in Acts chapter 6 as people were raised up to wait on tables. And as we study uh, the role of deacon throughout the New Testament, we understand that these are people who just sort of have a gift of serving. They're just there to help and to take care of the practical needs of the church and of the people. And they do that so that, uh, as our example goes in Acts 6, remember Peter and the other apostles said, it's not good for us to leave the ministry of the word and prayer. You know, we're called to do this, to, to take care of the people, to minister to the people. You guys figure out how to take care of these practical needs so that we can be free to focus on the ministry that God has given us. So the role in the office of deacon is really an enabling ministry that enables the work of the church to happen and enables things to run smoothly and freely. And then we find, as we read in other places, there's the role of elder. Uh, and the two different words are used for that. Um, one sometimes is referenced as bishop. Uh, the Greek words can be presbyteros or episkopos. They essentially mean the same thing, although they're different words, and they refer to that role of being an overseer. Sometimes you'll see that word in your translation. And an overseer or a bishop, uh, depending on where you're reading, could be an episkopos or a presbyter, meaning elders. These are the people who are overseeing the spiritual life of the body. But then there's another word that's used, that used that's called poimen, and a poimen is a pastor. Poimen is shepherd. So when God has appointed people to be pastors or pastors and teachers, he's called them to be poimen or shepherds. And we know from John chapter 10 where Jesus gives us a very poignant picture of what a shepherd looks like. In that passage, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. So he sort of lays down the example of what a shepherd does. A shepherd loves the sheep and protects the sheep and cares for the sheep and nurtures the sheep. And then in that passage, he talks about a hireling. And a hireling is someone who's sort of a pseudo shepherd. They come in and pretend to be a shepherd, but they're really just there for the money. They're really just there for the benefits. And they are not really there to take care of the flock. In fact, Jesus says in that passage in John 10, the hireling, when trouble comes, they're out of there. And they're not going to stand with the flock. You know the old saying, the captain goes down with the ship? Well, the shepherd will stand between the wolf and the flock. The shepherd protects, the shepherd feeds, the shepherd leads. So we have these different roles that are spelled out for us. So Barnabas and Paul they were blessed with multiple roles. They were apostles. They were prophets. They were shepherds. God gave them this abundance of gifts. And know uh, what Paul said here to Barnabas, let us now go back with and visit our brethren and just see how they're doing. Remember, as they went through on their first journey, I mean, they were, they were in a place usually no longer than a week, a few days to a week. So thinking about, just to me, it's always so amazing to think about how God planted healthy, stable churches. Someone comes through the town, these two men, these, these two apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. They come in, they preach the gospel, they went to the synagogues first, if there was a synagogue there. They preached. Usually there were Jews and Gentiles there. Most of the time the Jews rejected it or had lots of questions and just didn't have the faith to believe. But the Gentiles heard and received and these Gentile churches were being established and people believed and they were getting baptized and then a few days later they were like, 
hey, it would seem that you, you, and you should be leaders. We're on our way. God bless you. Hope that God, you know, grows you and, and takes care of you. Keep in mind, they didn't have one of these. They were Gentiles. They didn't have access to the scrolls. They were dependent on the Holy Spirit. So Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, now going back saying, let's go see how our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing. Now some trouble enters the scene in verse 37. It says that Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now I want to call attention this morning to some words. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible or highlighting, you should highlight or circle these words. The first one in verse 37 is the word determined. In verse 36, you see the word insisted. In verse 39, the word contention, sharp, and parted. So these are what we need to look at as we go through this this morning. It says in verse 37, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. The word determined there means purposed or resolved within himself. And the implication is unwilling to compromise. So Barnabas already had this preset, preconceived notion that when it came to this discussion, the issue of John Mark was just a non-negotiable. I'm not going anywhere unless John Mark goes with me. We're not taking this trip, Paul, unless John Mark goes with us. Kenneth Wiest, who is a New Testament Greek scholar, uh, in his sort of free translation, translated this verse this way. He says, Now Barnabas, after thinking the matter over, kept on insisting that they take along with them also John, the one called Mark. So this was a point that Barnabas was unwilling to concede on. And he said, We are going to take Mark with us. And that's just the way it is. Now, we're told elsewhere that they are related uh, we, so one place says they're cousins, another place says that he's his nephew, but if you go back and read uh, earlier in Acts, it says that uh, I believe Barnabas's sister was the house where Peter came to in uh, Acts chapter 12 after he had been released from prison, and Mark was her son, so we understand him to be the nephew. But as you imagine with Barnabas, you know, we know from his life, you know, his name from the very first time he was introduced to us at the end of Acts ch chapter 4, I believe, uh, could have been 5, where Barnabas came in and we are immediately told right there from the very first time he's introduced to us that he's called the son of encouragement. So Barnabas is this man who just loves people. And, and being an encourager means not only do you want to see people do well, but you're quick to forgive, right? You want to you know, kind of help them get back up in the saddle, so to speak. So you can understand Barnabas' personality, his makeup was one of just, man, I want to see people do well. I want to help them. I want to do what I can to invest in them and help them learn and grow in the Lord. So he had this heart, right? And certainly John Mark being his nephew uh, had a special place in his heart. So hold that thought as we get through this here. But Paul, verse 38, Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So we have Barnabas' point of view, which admittedly may be a little bit skewed because he's a relative. 
but he has this encouraging heart and he wants John Mark to be there. He wants to give him a second chance. Paul, looking at the situation, sees it a bit differently. We should not take with him the one who had departed from us. Now the word insisted is a very interesting word when you look it up in all the Greek dictionaries and all that. And it means this, it means that he thought him not worthy, that he deemed him unfit and he counted him undeserving. The King James renders this, that he thought it not good. Again, Wiest helps us here where he says, but Paul kept on considering it uh, the part of wisdom with reference to this one who withdrew from them, uh, from Pamphylia, and did not go with them to the work. So when it says the one who had departed from them, again, you look that word up, deserted, withdrew, <clears throat> walked away, fell away, removed himself. And the implication is that when John Mark departed from them, that he, he left without explanation. And it would seem that Paul's looking at this situation as he's not trustworthy. Uh, he's, he betrayed our trust. And, it, you know, although we're not told it, when you, when you consider why would somebody do this? You know, as they go on, you know, this journey, John Mark, now perhaps he was young. But why would he abandon them on this journey? You know, there's a lot we're not told. So, so to be honest, anything we say would be speculation. But I know just thinking in my own life, perhaps you've had a similar situation. Maybe you committed to something and you're like, I'm going to go do this thing. But then there's a certain point you reach and, and what usually happens is that fear grips you. Something happens where maybe you, you think, I've not really counted the cost accurately and this is going to cost me too much. Maybe in terms of personal growth. Maybe it's in situations that I'm not going to be in. Maybe in that first part of the journey, he already saw that, uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas, man, they needed basically a deacon to travel with them to take care of their needs. And maybe John Mark was thinking, hey, man, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not going to be your errand boy. Whatever it was. It caused him to turn away. And as they went on through that journey, we know, as we read, that the journey, that first journey, was incredibly difficult, wasn't it? They had to travel from the seacoast after they left Cyprus and went to the mainland, uh, the southern Turkey there. Remember we talked about they went upwards something like 3,500 vertical feet for a long ways, many, many, many miles. And then when they got up there, remember Paul had some kind of something going on. He may have had malaria or scarlet fever or something. Plus he already had his other issues he was dealing with. And, you know, he needed help. He needed someone to, to sort of assist him and take care of things so that he could focus and pray. And so when John Mark deserted them, this left a real hole in Paul's heart. Now you might even look at it, although again it's speculation, perhaps Paul was unforgiving even of what happened, but we don't know. So we've got this kind of dichotomy here between Barnabas, as we've just talked about, his uncle and encourager, the one ready to forgive and give a second chance and all of that. Paul looking back at the great work, the seriousness of the ministry, thinking this journey really is going to be no different than the first one. And what's changed anyway with John Mark? And so Paul looking at this 
perhaps thinking the cost was so great on the first journey we can't really trust this guy again and, and get into the journey and then have him turn back again. We need someone. We need someone with us. So basically, Paul, I believe, felt that he was not trustworthy and maybe he said words like, not this time or he's not yet ready. Maybe he was saying, yeah, I'm willing to give him a second chance, but not now. The cost is too great. So in verse 39, it says, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And then we saw that Paul chose Silas and departed. So here in verse 39, remember I, I said looking at contention and sharp and parted. This, the contention became so sharp, that's actually a phrase. And that phrase is from a Greek word called paroxmus or paroxysm. And what it means is to be um, incited or sort of provoked to contention. It means to have a dispute in anger and irritation. And in a bad sense, the paroxysm is the stirring up of anger. It's a sharp contention. It's an angry dispute. So in other words, this exchange between Barnabas and Saul was not just a discussion and a friendly disagreement. This was a heated argument. This was an angry argument. And we don't even know, because we aren't told, did this happen in the church? Who witnessed this? Now Luke, as he records it for us, he was either there or someone related to him. But this is a very serious situation. Remember, we've just been talking about it from the time Barnabas has come on the scene till now. Barnabas has been nothing but a blessing, right? Nothing but a blessing. He and Paul were like this. They were ministers. They had traveled together. And listen, if you've never traveled with someone, not your family, but like on, on a business trip or something, or you, you've done a lot of miles. There's a guy I traveled with many years ago. We used to <clears throat> take trips everywhere. We became very close. He's still a good friend to this day. But you get to know one another. <clears throat> you learn to trust one another. And this issue has driven a wedge between not just brothers, but pastors, apostles, prophets, elders. So this contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. This was not a mild, gen mild gentleman's disagreement. This was a passionate conflict. So it says that they parted. That word parted <clears throat> means that they were basically torn asunder. They were ripped apart. And when they left that conflict, they were so unsettled with each other. Basically, it's like turning your backs and walking in different directions. It probably, in some respects, felt like a divorce to them. Now let's kind of zoom out for a moment. What was going on here? What was the issue? One wanted to take John Mark. The other one said, no, I don't think it's right. I don't, I don't think he's ready. And they were both assessing and evaluating the man, John Mark, and seeing it very differently. So the issue as it began was not an issue of sin, but it was an issue of opinion about the fitness of this young man to serve. It was an issue of the direction. It was an issue of what they felt the leading of the Holy Spirit might be for them. And if you've ever been through anything like this, 
a disagreement. It's not a sin issue. It's not that somebody has done something heinous and they need to be brought forward and they need to repent and all of that. This is just two brothers, two pastors who can't agree. So let me stop and give two <clears throat> examples on this before we continue. <clears throat> Many years ago, we were a part of, the, of a church. This was uh, long before I became a pastor. The church <clears throat> went through something very similar to this. There were two pastors, a pastor and an assistant pastor, and at that time there happened to be three elders. And that's sort of the way the church was run and governed. Well, one day on a Sunday morning service, and our church had been growing. It had uh, become 300 people. We were having two services, and you know the church was growing. It was a wonderful place to be. We were thriving. One Sunday morning, we come to worship, and one of the elders comes up and says, hey, we have a problem to bring before the church. And I think this whole thing was, in my opinion, in hindsight, mishandled, but at the time, that's what seemed good to them. And they brought the problem out into the open. <clears throat> they actually called a congregational meeting, which people came to, and they sort of brought it. And it was basically a disagreement between the pastors and the elders. And since it was a kind of a three-two situation, they felt that well, we can't settle it. We can't agree amongst ourselves. So we'll do the wise thing and take it to the whole church. Now, if you've ever been in a church congregational meeting, it's, if you've ever been to a town meeting in your town, it's worse than that, right? I mean, people can't agree on anything because you know, there's people who love this person and people who love that person. Well, the net effect of what happened of this whole thing, and trust me, the issue was nothing. It was just a disagreement. Not only did it split the church, not, not meaning that a group of people broke off and started another church, but within three to four weeks, we went from 300 people to 90 people and back to one service. And, and the people who were there just kind of went, well, we're not going to stay here for this. Because meeting after meeting was held congregationally and nothing was happening, nothing was moving. And it was just, we can't decide. It was literally like, we can't decide what color the carpet should be or what color the curtains should be. I mean, it was really that kind of an issue. But it, it, it caused a deep divide because people had deep issues, deep things that they were holding on to. What happened out of that was after a couple of years of no pastor, of having interim people come in and the church just kind of floundering. This new pastor was brought in. Um, when he came, you know, he was a very, very different guy. Uh, all I can just say is he was just a different person. Not good, not bad, just a different person. But when he came in, his personality polarized the church. And a lot of people left, so that 90 became even less. And we became <clears throat> uh, one of the families who, in that situation, we were just in a position of discomfort and disagreement with the, the direction that the church had taken. And so we felt provoked to leave. And, and it was a hard thing for us because this had been our church family for like seven or eight or nine years. It was a very difficult thing for us. But that ultimately led us to this thing called Calvary Chapel. So God used it. So one of the first points to understand is that when these disagreements happen, they may not be God's will in the way they're handled. 
or the way they're carried out, but God can still use them, right? God can redeem any situation, and certainly God used it for good in my life. Now, when we come to these situations, we have to ask ourselves questions. Is it worth the cost? Is what worth the cost? Holding my position. Insisting that this is the only way. Is it worth dividing from each other over? Is it worth even splitting the church if it's that kind of an issue? And we always have to consider how what we do affects other people. So is it worth sabotaging potentially or shipwrecking someone else's faith? Because when it's in the church, everything points to Jesus, right? Remember Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. And these situations speak of anything but love. This just seems like little kids who can't get along. We have to ask ourselves, is this an issue or a position that the scriptures clearly address? If it's a sin issue, if it's something that's certainly a right versus wrong, then yes, it has to be dealt with, for sure. And there's Matthew 18, there's other places that talk about this, and we'll look at some of that in a moment. But often... We have to sort of walk away, meaning say, hey, look, we're going to take a break. We're going to have a little cooling off period. Walk away from each other. Come back later by agreement. Come back and say, okay, we're going to talk about this next week. Let's all take some time to go away and pray and seek the Lord and read his word and seek the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, examine me. Is there anything in me that needs to change here? You know, on our board because of these experiences I've had and others. Uh, we have you know, both written in the bylaws as well as the way we operate is simply this. <clears throat> Legally, we do kind of the three-quarters majority. That's what's written in case we ever get stuck. But the way we operate is with unanimity. And so if we as a board come to something that we can't agree on or maybe one person's dissenting on or whatever, we will table it. And we will say, we're going to go away and pray, and we're all going to wait on the Lord, and then we'll come back together. And that has served us so well. And if we come back again and someone's not on board with it, we'll just continue to wait. You know, we're not going to steamroll somebody, you know, to get through something. And I believe these are good principles that we need to have in our lives when we come to these points of disagreement. These two men who love Jesus couldn't agree. Now as you read this um, and you read all the commentaries and I read probably way more this week than I usually read because I wanted to understand this and of course I taught this 10 years ago but I, I wanted to <clears throat> just sort of evaluate what, what was going on here and the way Luke and the Holy Spirit portray this situation is not so much that one of them was right and one of them was wrong. That's not the way it was portrayed. However, when you come to something this big and the way that it was handled, you have to wonder if the Spirit of God is speaking, then there has to be a unity to move forward. So it would seem that there was not a unity of the Spirit in this situation. So as we come to verse 40, it says, uh, you know, just previously here it said... Uh, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. So Barnabas just said, we're out of here. He grabbed Mark and said, get your coat, we're going. And they left. 
verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Notice, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So I think this sort of bears it out, doesn't it? Remember back in Acts 13 when they were sent out? How were they sent out? Hands were laid upon them. They were commended to the grace of God. We're at the... The, the fountainhead of the second journey, what happens here? This, this situation happens, this split, this difference of opinion. And Barnabas kind of leaves in a huff with Mark. Paul, however, is commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And that usually means they pulled them together, they prayed for them, they laid hands on them, just like we did with Jesse this morning. And I would like to point out to, to you here, and I think it's an observation And I would say it this way. Paul was sent, but Barnabas went. And it's unpleasant, right, to think of this. In fact, as you read the commentators, almost all of them say, well, this was a tough situation, but God apparently wanted two missions teams. So he split them up, and uh, Barnabas and John Mark went here, and Paul and Silas went there. But here's the observation. Barnabas is mentioned 28 times in the New Testament, 24 of them in the book of Acts, but after this point, he's never mentioned again. Now later, he is mentioned in other scriptures. We'll get to that in a moment. But it would seem that the ministry and the impact of Barnabas was diminished greatly when he was separated from from Paul. So this leads me to think at least that Paul may have been the one who was led by the Spirit and that Barnabas probably not. However, the way that it was handled, I think we can all agree, was not a healthy, wholesome way to handle the conflict. Later, we find that Paul says when he wrote to the Corinthians, he says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? It would seem that some point down the road they had sort of made up and maybe even reunited. In Galatians 2, um, uh, several times Barnabas is spoken of there, but I believe in that passage it was probably before this split. John Mark, we find out he also is spoken of later, where it would seem Paul said, you know, hey, later, uh, get Mark in Second Timothy chapter 4. Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So things were sort of healed up and patched up down the road several years. And it says in verse 41, and he uh, went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. So Paul and Silas are now doing this, and Barnabas and Mark are doing that. But Barnabas and Mark sort of basically disappear. Not much is said about them. However, Paul continues. To finish this up, before we go to something else here to sort of help us understand how to apply this. As they were going back to strengthen the churches, which is where they started out, they said, we want to go back and strengthen the churches. Paul's now traveling with Silas. So what did God do in bringing Silas in to fill the role that Barnabas had? Well, remember Silas was a member of the church in Jerusalem. Remember they were going back to not only strengthen the churches, but to take that letter also to those churches where the Judaizers had gone in and done the same thing to those churches that they did to the church in Antioch. 
Silas was a Jewish witness to that. He was a prophet. That was one of his gifts. He most likely spoke Greek. That was a helpful thing as they were heading into Greek territory. Uh, we know from later epistles that he served as a stenographer to Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and later there's a reference to him in 1 Peter as well. So he fulfilled a very important role. And though Barnabas was a great loss, Silas was a great gain. So they went and they strengthened the churches. It's not with his friend. It's not, I believe, necessarily what God intended, but God is in control, right? He can bring people together and do what he wants to, to handle the situation. One person pointed out that all Christians walk with a limp. We all rely on the grace of God, and it is from our failures that we learn the most. What I want to do now is switch over to something here, if you guys can... Let me switch over if you can give me the Apple TV for a second. I just want to share some verses on how we might apply this and how we might learn from this situation where we have brothers in Christ who um, now are doing things differently. They've split up. They're two different teams. There we go. So this first one here, now what we want to do is just look for a moment at some scriptures that may be review for us, but it will help us understand how do we handle disagreements when they happen. They happen, right? Not only do they happen in the church, which was the context of what we're talking about here, but if you're in a family, if you're married, if, if you have friends, there will be times when you disagree. So what do the scriptures have to say about this issue of how we handle our disagreements. So we're going to go through a series of slides that basically are just scripture. We'll make a brief comment. And by the way, there's uh, copies of this on the table right here at the back of the room if you want a copy of this presentation. I've also put back there um, a copy of something I did years ago where I went through and did a study on the one another's of the New Testament. So there's also a piece of paper there front and back that has a reference to all of the one another's. So both of those are back there as resources for you. So in Mark chapter 12, Jesus was approached by the scribes and the Pharisees and they said, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. It's this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no commandment greater than these. See, this is basic. This is the foundation. And what this is telling us is if we love God on the vertical, then on the horizontal, our ability to love and to get along with people will be right. So love God, love people. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now this speaks of we've come, we're coming to worship, and we're, we're, we're in our heart or our mind kind of going, I know this person has a problem with me. And this is saying that we 
have the responsibility is being aware of that to go to that person and say, look, can we resolve this? Can we come together? Can we discuss it? Can we work it out? And it's saying here that having unresolved conflict affects our worship, doesn't it? It affects our worship. Um, okay, there we go. First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. This is how we as believers think about and view other people. Love is patient. This is the agape love of God, the love that has filled our hearts. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Remember when we were talking about the conflict between Barnabas and Paul, the very first thing was Barnabas was already dug in. He was like, no. We are not going to change. This is the way. He had already sought his own and had, was convinced his way was the only way. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Doesn't hold a grudge. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You see, as believers, this is who we are supposed to be. So when we come to these points of conflict, this is what we fall back on. In Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with uh, which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. In other words, putting up with a lot kind of goes along with the love passage being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit the unity of the, the body and the greater good is far more important than my opinion on something how about when we get into those heated conflicts and the you know we say things that we regret later Ephesians 4:29 let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth ouch but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. That one right there is something that we probably all have to deal with, right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve him? By the stuff that comes out of our mouth. And didn't Jesus say... Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And where's the issue? The issue's always in our hearts, isn't it? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is to be our position. This is to be our disposition. And in like manner, he says in Romans 12, 10, be kindly affectionate to one another. All right. So, sorry, we've lost the connection here for some reason. Try that again. See if we can get it back. If not, I'll just continue to share it with you. So, okay. Okay. 
Romans 12, we have a similar kind of a thing uh, given to us here. Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Listen to this. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Listen to this one, verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, doing everything we can to preserve the peace in the body of Christ. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, uh, says the Lord. And then he goes on to say, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. What do we do in those heated moments? We show love. Rather than digging in and saying, It's my way or no way. Matthew 5, 9, again, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is an important thing with God. And doesn't Romans 5 tell us that we have been brought to peace with God through the blood of Christ? Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What is the debt we owe one another? It's to love one another. He continues with that thought in verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If you are angry and vengeful and bitter and you're holding a grudge, you can't do that and do verse 10, can you? Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, love is the blanket that covers a multitude of sins. In Romans 15, he talks about coming out of chapter 14, which was dealing with meat sacrificed to idols and weak and strong believers. He says, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are not as strong and not just please ourselves. Hey, it's, you, know, you know what? I can't deal with this. So I'm just going to go do my thing and you do your thing. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. Wow, imagine if we actually did that in the church of Jesus Christ, if we actually lived to please one another. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus lived to serve others. Hebrews 10, this is a verse we love to quote, about gathering together. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. That's how we, that word stimulate there is the word provoke. Let us consider how to stimulate or to provoke one another to love and to good deeds. So we are to provoke one another, but in this way. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but listen, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, we should be aware of the time that we're living in. And if I could just give me a little bit of liberty by paraphrasing this, we don't have time to mess around and to get caught up in foolish disputes over differences of opinion. Why? Because the days are evil. Because the day is drawing near. We need to be focusing on being the church, loving one another, loving the world, and preaching the gospel. We don't have time for these little internal problems. 
Let no one, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, seek his own, but each, each other's will, well-being, bearing out again uh, Romans 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, let all that you do be done with love. Who can escape this passage in Philippians uh, chapter 2, where Paul is talking about Jesus himself, and he says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Listen, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Such a different way of thinking. It's, it's the mind of Jesus. It's the mind of the Spirit. Again, listen to the repetition of this idea. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is how Jesus thought. This is how Jesus acted. Colossians 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, and we have, holy and beloved, and we are, put on... A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Let me state that in reverse. You and I do not have a right to hold something against another person that God doesn't hold against them. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Colossians 4, again talking about our tongue. Let your speech always be with grace, as those seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. If speech is going, if our uh, grace is going to be our speech, then grace has to be in our hearts. Last one. 2 Timothy, Paul writing to him, says, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate not strife, not peace, not love, but strife. And a servant of the Lord. Now these are pastors and elders and deacons and a servant of the Lord. Must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So there's a wide application to that one. Titus 1.7, a bishop, a leader, an elder, must be blameless as a steward of God. Listen, not self-willed, basically seeking your own. Not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And finally, in James 3, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, could be also in quotes, this quote wisdom, does not descend from above, <laughs> but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 
But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Wow. Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What do we do when good men disagree? What do we do when we can't resolve situations? We pray, we walk away, we seek the Lord. We repent if that's what needs to happen. We get refilled with the Spirit. We go and we make it right with our brother or our sister. But what we don't do is we don't dig in and we don't insist on our, on our own way. And we wait for the Holy Spirit to bring illumination and to bring peace and to bring guidance to the situation. You may say, but we have a deadline to meet. And I'm going to make a decision because the deadline's here. God knows you have a deadline. Can't God take care of it? It might be better to go back and extend the deadline and wait for the clarity that God can bring to our lives. So I hope that this has been helpful. I hope it's been illuminating. I think it's given us an opportunity to take a step back and just think about these things. How do we deal with conflict? This was a serious situation. God takes care of it. He does redeem the situation later, but it probably caused some kind of a difficulty there in that church. Those who witnessed it, probably not a good experience for them. But we want to conduct ourselves the way we just talked about, right? We want to be people of peace. We want to be people who are seeking the good of others. We want to be people who love one another. And ultimately, we want to be people, like Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Amen. Lord, thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you for speaking to us. And Lord, we just ask that whatever any of us needs to take from this that we would take and we would be open and that we would receive and Lord if there's something we need to make right with somebody then that we would do that and Lord that we would be open that we would be willing to change and that we would trust you to work it out because Lord you're bigger than all of this and the testimony and the witness and the truth of the gospel is so much bigger than these secondary opinion-related issues. So Lord, help us to be people of grace, people of mercy, people filled with your Spirit, people who love one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.